invite you to remain standing for our scripture reading. We're reading from John chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, picking up in the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples. And uh, during the meal, Jesus got up, and that's where we're picking up. So let's join together as we hear God's good word. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Brandon Blackston. I'm a, an associate pastor here. I'm the new guy on staff, and it's really exciting to be with you. I'm excited to share this message with you, and it's really a blessing to be a part of Acts 2. Um, this is a church that, that I've been paying attention to, that I've been trying to learn from as I've been a pastor, and so I never thought I would have the opportunity to actually be a part of this community of faith. So it's such a blessing. It's something that I'm so excited about, and it's really an honor to be with you. Um, went to college with Andy and Melissa, and we've been friends for years and, and got to know Mark and Chantel through the Methodist Conference, and we've been friends with them as well. And, and so we're just really thankful for, for this opportunity and uh, excited to be with you this morning. Our sermon series is, um, is The Art of Neighboring. And uh, as you saw in the graphic, we're asking, what, what would it look like if we really loved our neighbors? We're starting with the great commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples. This is how the, the authors that this series is based on, this is how they um, summarize that commandment. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbors as yourself. And we're asking the question, you know, we, um, we sometimes when we think about loving our neighbor, we think about loving people who are out there, who are really different than us or who are in need. And we're asking, what if Jesus meant love your literal neighbor? And I believe he did mean that. And, and so we want to love everyone, but particularly we're going to look at what it looks like to really love our physical neighbors well. And so last week we talked about the fear factor, how sometimes we're afraid um, whenever engaging with our neighbors. Sometimes we're afraid that they're weird. They might be afraid of the same thing with us. And, uh, and sometimes we're just afraid that well, we don't really have anything to offer them. And so uh, we looked at the, the feeding of the 5,000 and how Jesus had been teaching a crowd of 5,000, maybe just 5,000 men, so 10,000 or more, including women and children, but, but how he'd been teaching them all day. And at the end of the day, they were hungry and it was time to eat and, and they didn't have a way to feed them. And Jesus took the offering of a little boy who had five loaves and two fish, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he blessed it, and he shared it. And somehow, God used that 
to feed all of those people with 12 baskets left over. And so our action step for last week was inspired by that is give what you have and watch God make a miracle. Because God can take those little things that we have, those five loaves and two fish, and turn them into something amazing that is a blessing for our neighbors. And so two specific ways that we asked everyone to do that last week was to bake a tasty treat for your neighbor. Um, we, We also make allowances for if you don't bake, if you and your oven don't get along, you're welcome to buy something and to share that with your neighbor. We also invited you to have a block party and invite maybe five to eight people and and invite them in and just share a good time. And and it's been really exciting this week to hear stories of how you all have done that. And and it's been really cool to see that it's the young people who are taking the lead and and are blessing their neighbors. And and so if you haven't done that, that's okay. Um, There's still plenty of opportunities. And I want to invite you to, to find a way to bless your neighbor this week. We've also been looking at our block chart, and uh, that's, uh, if you look at the sermon notes on the insert in your bulletin, on the back of that, you have a block chart that you can use, but that center house is, it says you are here, that represents your house, and so when you're thinking about the, the eight people, the eight neighbors that are closest to you, we want to know, do you know their names? Do you know anything about them? And, and we hope that each week you're able to fill in a new name on that block chart. So, uh, so what new names can you fill in? And um, regardless of if you have a lot to write or nothing, we hope that you'll take another step this week and continue to get to know your neighbors. Because uh, as we heard, from, I think, from Pastor Andy in week one, it's hard to love people that you don't know. It, it's almost impossible. So we hope that you continue to get to know them. And so, um, so that's, uh, that's what we're looking at. And, uh, and so I'm talking today about the art of receiving, another important part of neighboring, and one that, that I'm, I'm kind of glad, but kind of not, that I was the one who, who drew this to preach on, because I'm terrible at the art of receiving. And, and I'll, I'll share with you a little bit about that. But we just moved here from Tuttle. Um, we're, we're new to Edmond. We bought a house and have lived here for about three weeks now. But I grew up in Norman and graduated from Norman High, Go Tigers, and uh, then attended Oklahoma City University. That's where I met Andy and Melissa. It's also where I met my wife. We, uh, we went through, uh, we were in the same class and went through three and a half years together. And finally, that last semester, I got smart and, uh, and uh, started to uh, say, maybe I should spend more time with this person. And uh, it worked out really well for me. Um, so, so that was exciting. We moved to um, Nashville and, and were married and I attended Vanderbilt University. That's where I went to seminary. And she got a degree in youth ministry and, um, and now serves as a youth minister at the United Methodist Church of the Good Shepherd. That's in Yukon. So she's usually not able to be here. Um, she's usually engaged in ministry on Sunday mornings, but she's here this morning, and uh, you'll have an opportunity to get to know her. And uh, after, after um, we finished school, we moved back to Oklahoma. That was always our plan. Courtney's from Sepulpa, by the way, up by Tulsa. And we moved back to Oklahoma and, and were sent to Hydro, about 50 miles west of the metro. And I was the pastor of the First United Methodist Church of Hydro. We were there for three and a half years and then moved to Tuttle, where I served as a pastor of First United Methodist Church for two and a half years. And, and we moved from Tuttle here. So anyway, that's pretty much my whole life story, except for one, one important piece. While, while we were in, uh, in Hydro, um, our daughter was born, Elsie. She's three years old. Don't worry, I've got pictures, and we'll see that later on. But uh, um, she's, uh, she's here as well, and, and you'll get to know her, and there'll be an opportunity after the service as well. But, but, so that's, that's my life in a nutshell, and, and um, hopefully it's more interesting than just the details I shared with you. But, uh, but that kind of brings us to today, and, and we moved to Edmond, and people have been so gracious with us and have been offering help and just said, you know, is there anything that we can do? Whatever we can do for you, we'd be glad to do it. And, uh, you know, uh, mostly what I say whenever they say, is there anything we can do? I I say, no. And uh, it's not because I don't need help. I I need a lot of it. 
but I don't want to impose on people. I don't think my stuff is worth their time. Sometimes it's because, like, if I was going to invite you into my house to, like, help me move stuff, then I would have to, like, pick it up first. So, so that part of it's not very appealing, but, but it's hard to accept help sometimes, and, and it's difficult. And one, I, I exemplified this in one situation, but whenever I was moving into my office here, I had uh, boxes loaded up in the back of my car, and so I pulled into the drive out in front of our offices in the chapel building next door. And, uh, and uh, you know, there were lots of people working. The, the offices were full, but, you know, I didn't want to impose. I didn't want to bother anyone, so I was just going to get my stuff and, and get it in by myself. So, so I picked up boxes and uh, got as much as I could carry, and I started walking up with my first load, and, and I got to the door, and it was closed. I learned later on that you can prop those doors open. That knowledge would have come in really handy, but I didn't yet possess it. So, uh, so you know how it is. You've got your arms full of boxes, and, and the, there's a door handle. And so I was able to take two fingers and kind of like hook the door handle. So, so I had hold of it, but I couldn't move my arm. So I had to like take steps back and move my whole body to get the door open. And so it was open, and I was on the wrong side of it, and, and not very mobile. So I had to like hook my leg around to prop it open, and then maneuver my shoulder around it without hitting the box on the other side of the door frame. And it, I'm really glad no one was standing there with their phone recording me because I must have looked ridiculous. But but you know, so I did this little dance move with the door, and I managed to get in. And if you've been over there, you know, there's another set of doors. So I had to do it again, and I made it in without incident. I didn't send my stuff sprawling all over the floor. It was great, and so I walked into my office and dropped off the boxes and then went out for round two, and, and I grabbed them and walked up and got ready to do my dance with the door again. And, and I looked, and, and if you've seen our offices, you know that they're glassed in, and there were two people standing there, and I thought, oh, great, they're going to see me. Not only are they going to see how ridiculous I look, but they might even offer to help. And I did not want any help. I, I was the new guy. I was self-sufficient. I, I could move into my office with, with no one's aid. And so I just, you know, I, I did my dance with the door, and I did it faster this time so they'd have a, less of a chance of seeing me in need. And, and I got in, and I dropped off my boxes, and, and then I only had one load left after that. And so I went, and, um, and as I was walking down the hallway toward my car, I saw Chantel. And I don't know if, if um, she saw me struggling or what, but she said, can I help you? And I said, you know, I think I've got it. And she walked out to the car with me anyway. I, I don't know if she saw me or, or if she just knew. She was like, okay, I think I know what that means. You're going to try to do it whether you can or not. But she came with me, and I picked up one box, and she picked up the other one, and then she was able to open the door for me, and I didn't have to dance with the door this time. And I walked in, and then she opened the other door, and it was a lot easier whenever I had someone helping and I thought, you know, I should have asked someone to do this in the first place. But it's hard to receive help sometimes. It's hard to receive from other people. And uh, I don't, I'm sure that you struggle with this, you know, whether it's something like uh, moving things. You're one of those people that, that is carrying a stack of things that's this high and someone offers to help and you say, no, I got it. And then you turn a corner and, and they hear a crash and come running. Um, maybe you've been in that situation before. Maybe you're someone and uh, it's just difficult to receive even a compliment. You know, someone compliments you and you say, well, you know, you have to make some kind of comment like, well, it wasn't that great or uh, I'm sure it was better than, uh, you know, whatever. We, we sometimes have trouble receiving. I think we have trouble receiving because we don't want to impose or make ourselves vulnerable. Because there's something about if, if I ask for someone else's help, I, I have to admit that I can't do it on my own. I have to admit that, that I'm not completely self-sufficient, that, that I don't have everything all together, and, and we don't want people to know that we don't have it all together. Uh, 
Obviously, I don't have any qualms about that because I just told you about the dance I did with a door trying to move into my office. So, uh, so we're not there, but, but there's still pressure to try to feel like you have it all together. I think particularly in the area that we live in, there's pressure to, to act like you're completely self-sufficient. You know, you're the kind of person that can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and you've got it all together. And, and so that pressure makes it difficult for us to receive. It's a challenge for us to receive. But here's why this matters. I, I think this is really important because if we cannot receive, we can't have a real relationship. If you can't receive, you can't have a real relationship. You can have transactions with another person. You can be someone else's benefactor, but you can't have a relationship. Not only with humans, but, but we can't have a relationship with God if we can't receive what God has to us. We can do all the right things that we're supposed to, but it's not a real relationship if we can't receive God's love and grace. And and so learning to receive is absolutely vital for our lives with each other and with God. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to turn to the scriptures and look to the Jesus last supper with his disciples. And so, um, and so Jesus had gathered his disciples together, and, um, and they were, it was the night before he would be crucified. And they were having the last supper together, and, and they were eating. And suddenly in the middle of the meal, Jesus got up. And the disciples probably looked around like, what's going on? Why, why doesn't he just finish his food? And he walked over, and he took off his outer robe, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And then he took a pitcher and poured water into a basin. And he grabbed the basin and walked to his disciples and began washing their feet and using the towel to dry them off. Now, foot washing was something that was familiar in Jesus' culture. It was something that, that people did often. It, it was necessary. So this is one of the things that I learned in seminary. Just for, for tens of thousands of dollars, you can learn amazing facts like this too. They did not have cars in Jesus' time. I know, that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg. But they had to walk. They wore sandals and had dirt streets, and so they had dirty feet. And, and you can imagine how they smelled after a long day of walking. And, and so it was an act, in Jesus' culture, foot washing was an act of hospitality and service. And so if you were hosting someone, you might take a bowl of water and set it by the door, and that way whenever they came in, they could wash their feet. And, and, and you can imagine how nice that would be after a long day of, of walking or working or whatever you're doing to be able to wash your feet, and, and I'm sure that was both hygienic and, and a comfort. And, and so you would do that. You wouldn't wash their feet for them, but you'd set the bowl of water out, and then they could do that for themselves. Now, if you're really wealthy, you might even have servants who could do that for you, and so you'd have a servant who would wash your feet. And, and if you're entertaining people, you'd have your servant wash your guests feet as well. But this was never something that you would do for someone who's a peer. You would never do this for someone who's on the same level as you. This is something that, that a lesser person did for a greater person. And so whenever Jesus started doing that for his disciples, it was totally caught them off guard. It was totally inappropriate. And it was, it was something that if, if somebody's feet were going to be washed, it should have been Jesus having his feet washed. He should never have picked up that bowl because he was the master. It was, I mean, he should have had some shame and, and felt humiliated probably for doing that. And so Peter saw what Jesus was doing, and I think at first he was just confused, like, like let, me, let me make sure that I'm seeing this correctly. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus was like, uh, okay, Peter, you don't know what I'm doing, but you'll understand it later. And, and Peter just flat out refused. He said, Lord, you will never 
wash my feet. Peter wasn't going to let him do that. There, there was no way. That was totally inappropriate. This was his master who wanted to wash his feet, and he should be washing Jesus' feet, not the other way around. So Peter wasn't going to have it. That, and I, I wonder, you know, part of it was probably like he was trying to like get Jesus back, like, hey, bro, I'm not going to let you humiliate yourself like this. But I think part of it was also as he looked at his Lord, at his Savior, at the one he'd given up everything to follow, and, and saw him getting ready to get down on his knees and wash his feet— that he must have had a profound sense of how unworthy he was to have Jesus do this for him, to have Jesus lower himself and wash his feet. I, I think that that happens to us a lot, that like Peter, we, whenever we think of other people helping us, part of us feels unworthy. And we, we think, you know, why would I ask them to help me whenever I clearly don't deserve that? And sometimes maybe it's even below the surface. We don't actually realize it, but that's what's going on deep down. We feel like we aren't even worthy of receiving God's help. I think Peter refused to let Jesus wash his feet because he felt unworthy. I think this is something that's not just, that doesn't just take place in our relationship with other people, but I think it also takes place in our relationship with God. You know, a lot of us are really good at doing the stuff that we ought to do. We, we pray, we go to worship, we read the Bible, we serve other people, we try to be nice, we, we try not to say the words that you're not supposed to say, at least not too often. But whenever it comes to receiving, we're glad to do all of those things. But when it comes to receiving from God, it's harder. We don't want to ask because we feel like, really, we don't deserve it. And so we're in a situation where we feel like receiving feels like a threat because it forces us to face our vulnerability and unworthiness. If we receive from other people, if we receive from God, we have to, to deal with the fact that, that we are vulnerable, that, that none of us is, is, is perfect, that none of us has our act completely together. And really, if, if we're honest with ourselves, that, that sometimes we don't feel like we deserve help, that we don't deserve God or other people taking time out of their busy schedules to give to us. Part of the reason that, that I got into ministry is, is, is dealing with this. I, I saw a lot of people whenever I, I was in high school and I was part of the youth group that seemed like they were going through the motions, that, that they did the right stuff, but, but that never actually had an experience of God's love and grace. Or maybe they had that at one point, but had it at another time. And I didn't just see it in others. I saw it in myself as well. I had the opportunity as a junior in high school, we had a youth-led service, and I was asked to be one of the preachers. We'd have three or four give a short sermon, and uh, I was asked to be one of those, and so I, I just through the, the process of writing that sermon, of, of giving it, and then reflecting on it, I felt like God was really calling me into this to, to be a, a preacher. Later on, I, I learned that you have to do other stuff besides just preach, so, so but... I, I, I do that stuff, don't worry. But, but preaching was really where it started for me. And, and the burden that God placed on my heart whenever I was giving that sermon was that I wanted people to know that God wants to have a real relationship with us and that relationship will change your life. That it's not just uh, once, you know, get washed and then you're good and then try not to do anything too bad or else God will get mad at you. And, but God will actually change our life, will change our hearts, will change our priorities in the way that we live, that, that the relationships we have to others that with, in our families and in the wider world, that, that that will be totally transformed by God's love. That, that passion is still what, what, what motivates me today is that I want everyone to know that, that not only can you come to church and have a good time and, and be spiritually fed, but, but God will totally change your life if you can receive his love and his grace. I hope each of us has that experience because receiving is absolutely critical in our spiritual lives and our lives with others. 
In fact, it was so important to Jesus that whenever Peter refused, this is what he said, Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. You have no part with me. This was not like an optional thing. This is like not, you know, I want to do something nice for my disciples. What can I do? I'll wash their feet. That'll be a nice going away gift. That's not what was going on. This was so important that it was a deal breaker. And for, for Jesus not to, for Peter not to let Jesus wash his feet, they couldn't continue to be in relationship anymore because the foot washing is not about feet. It's about relationship. If you know this story, you probably know this, but I'm going to go ahead and spell it out for you. The foot washing is not about feet. It's about a relationship. This was the last night in Jesus' life, the night before he was going to be crucified. He, he probably was only focusing on the things that were really important. I don't think that the cleanliness of his disciples' feet was at the top of that list, right? You all with me there? Like he wasn't like, I'm not going to be around anymore. No one's going to make sure Peter washes his feet and he always walks right by that bowl. I'm at least going to wash his feet while I still can. That's not what he was doing. It wasn't about his feet. It was about a relationship. It was about Jesus offering himself in, a, in an act that should have been humiliating, that was laying down his dignity, that was offering sacrifice and service for them. He was in, offering them love. He was offering them the love that he shared with the Father and the Son and inviting them into that same relationship in this powerful act of self-giving. And so for Peter to refuse that, for Peter to refuse that love was really to refuse a relationship with Jesus. Because to have a real relationship with God, we must receive the love and grace that Jesus offers us. It's tempting sometimes to think, you know, I'll just do all the right stuff and then I'll be good. That's not what it is. I mean, that's not what it's about. Because all of us, wherever we are in our spiritual life, we continue to need the grace of God. Whether, whether we're just starting out or whether we've been doing this for decades and think we have it figured out, we continue to rely on the love and God of grace to strengthen us, to push us, to help us to grow, to, to get us through the difficult times and to help us to serve others and be a blessing to transform this world. We will never grow out of that. We always rely on the love and grace of God. We always have to be able to receive one of the places where I experienced that really powerfully was in Mexico. Whenever I was in the youth group, we would, um, every spring break, travel to Mexico, and usually we would um, build houses for people there who, who had no ho- homes or had really inadequate shelter. And uh, this is a picture of me and my dad. One year he went. That year we actually built a chapel. We didn't build a chapel. We took a chapel that was falling down and, and moved it a few blocks. I, I don't know why there was a better spot, I guess, for it. But um, we reinforced it and painted it, and that's the, the finished product. And... Um, yeah, I know, I was really cool whenever I was in college. But, but whenever we went down there, usually we'd build houses. We'd build these, I don't know, maybe 10 by 15 foot cinder block houses. And I've got a shed in my backyard, maybe some of you do. So, so that's about the size of the homes that we built. But, but compared to what they had, it was a, a tremendous blessing. And the families that we helped were so blessed by that that frequently they'd want to do something for us as well. And so often they would cook a meal for us. And we had groups of 10 to 15 people. So this was not an insignificant undertaking. So they would make a meal for us. And one of the things we noticed while we were there is that often there would be livestock running around. There weren't a lot of fences. And so we'd see chickens running around. And, and then one day the family would cook for you. And you notice that there were fewer chickens running around than there had been the day before. And you know, I'm, I'm a city boy and never really thought about it. I guess whenever I have chicken, there, there's another chicken somewhere else that's not running around, but it had never been in my face like that. And so, I, you know, I had to kind of deal with that. But, but whenever I thought about it, you know, what is amazing is this act of generosity cost them so much that their assets were visibly reduced 
because of their blessing for us. I mean, that was an amazing realization that that was so important to us that, that, that they were willing to, to give that much. I don't know about you, but um, whenever I buy lunch for someone, it doesn't make that significant a, a dent in my bank account. For them, feeding us was a significant dent, but it was something they wanted to do. They wanted to bless us. And so you can imagine, we could have said, you know, we're pretty good. We brought our own lunches. No thanks. That was nice of you, but, but really, you need this more than we do. Or we could have said, wow, that was really good. Here, we'll pay you for it. And, and here's a tip as well. You all smiled so much whenever you served us. And how do you think those families would have felt? They would have been insulted. We would have taken away their dignity. And we wouldn't have had a relationship with them. Because we went down there not just to, not just to be saviors or to help people who couldn't help themselves, we came down to be in a relationship with them. The work was important, but the, work, the relationship was even more important. And to have that relationship, we had to recognize that they had something to offer us as well. You can't have a real relationship with your neighbors if you're unwilling to receive. It's not possible. If you can't receive, it's not a relationship. You can imagine being married to someone who... who can't receive anything that you have to offer. All right, that might sound great, like, okay, so they're going to cook and clean and take care of everything. If they can't receive, then I don't have to do anything, right? But imagine after a few weeks living with someone who thinks you have nothing to offer them. That would be awful. It's not a relationship. That's not a marriage. To have a real relationship, we have to be able to receive. I heard a story of a neighborhood that did this really well, and I don't know about you, if, if you have, uh, if you have um, a, a practice whenever new people move into your neighborhood, I guess probably the dominant one for most of them is like, is think we ought to do something for them, and then six months later think, oh, we never did that thing that we were hoping we would do. Maybe you make cookies and take it over or, you know, welcome them somehow. In this neighborhood, whenever someone new moved in, all of the neighbors would go to their front door and knock and then ask to borrow something a screwdriver, um, eggs, whatever it was, they would borrow something. That, that doesn't sound very hospitable to me, does it to you? Like, all right, I, I'm living out of boxes. I'm, I'm living this right now, and I can just imagine, I don't know where any of my stuff is, and if I was trying to find it to loan it to somebody else, that, that doesn't sound like that great of a deal. And so somebody had moved in and had the experience of everyone coming and borrowing their stuff, and, and most of them brought it back. But they tried to figure it out, you know, why, why do we do this? Why, why does this neighborhood do that? So they asked someone who had lived there for longer, and the person told them, whenever somebody moves in and we go and borrow something from them, then they feel like we're obligated to them. They know that we are obligated to them. And so whenever they need something, they won't hesitate to come and ask us, that they'll be able to receive what we have whenever they're in a time of need. I experienced something like this in my life, the power of neighboring and being able to receive whenever my dad had a stroke. I was a senior in college, and he was at home alone with my sister, who was only 10 years old at the time. And he fell over and, and couldn't speak clearly, and, and she was just terrified. So she called my mom and asked what to do. And my mom said, go next door and get Tom. Tom lived next door and, and was a doctor. And so my sister ran over there and got him, and he ran right over to our house and, and took care of my dad and called the paramedics and, and stayed with them until they were able to come and pick him up. And then whenever they got to the hospital, he continued to care for him there. Now, I don't know what the outcome would have been. My dad ended up recovering. And, and I don't know, you know, maybe he would have been fine if the paramedics just came and, and uh, nobody, no doctor intervened. But, but I'll tell you, at a time whenever our family was going through something traumatic, knowing that we had a neighbor there who was caring for my dad made such a difference. It was so powerful. 
A few years later in 2015, my dad had another stroke that was worse and was hospitalized. He was staying at a hospital where Tom wasn't able to practice, but he was up there visiting and Tom's been a family friend for years since I was about four, and, and, and I try never to bother him. He's my doctor as well, but I try not to bother him unless it's absolutely necessary. I've got his cell number, but, but you know, I, I figure he, probably as a doctor, he can't go to a pool party without having five people say, hey, while I've got my shirt off, does this mole look okay to you? And so I try not to bother him with any of that kind of stuff, but, but he said, look, if you need something, call me, text me. I don't care what time it is. Uh, I love your dad, and I love you guys. I'm going to take care of you. And so whenever the doctors would come and tell us something and we needed someone to translate it into English, Tom was there for us. Whenever we had to make hard decisions, we were able to talk about the different options and ask him what he would do for himself or if it were his dad, and, and he told us. Later on, whenever we had to move to hospice care and, uh, and um, it was the end of my dad's life, Tom was the one who took care of him and, and who was his doctor during the last days. I can't tell you how powerful it was to know that we had someone who loved us and who cared about us, who was walking with my dad and, and telling us the things that we needed to know whenever we were at our greatest need. It was because we had a neighbor from whom we could receive, because we could receive the gifts that we had, because we had a real relationship with him. And I think really that's why we're doing this series, is we want people to know whenever I have you know, the worst things happening to my family is I have people around me that I can count on, that I have people who care enough that they're going to show up and help. That, that doesn't happen if we don't know our neighbors. They might feel bad for us, but we're not going to have the relationship for them to step in. I think especially for people who don't have a church family to support them and encourage them during those times, they need to have someone who's going to care for them. So that's why we're studying the art of neighboring. So as you think about how to live that out this week, th- these are our action steps this week. First, recognize where you need God's grace and pray for God's provision. Recognize your need for God's grace and pray for God's provision. All of us need God's grace all the time. Every hour, we never outgrow that need. And so whatever it is you need in your life, whether it's direction, you've got a difficult decision that you have to make, pray for God to provide that. Whether you're going through a really difficult time and you need comfort and peace, pray for God's peace. If you know where you need to go, but you're not sure you have the courage, pray for courage to, for God to get you there. And if you have no idea what to pray for, just say, God, look, the preacher said I need something. I don't know what it is, but you do, so give it to me. You know, that's really not that bad of a place to start. Sometimes just asking God and saying, you know what I need better than I do. Please provide it. Because we have a God who loves to provide for us exactly what we need. It may not always look like what we want it to or what we expect, but God loves to provide for his children. And then recognize areas where you need help and ask someone who can help. I know what you're thinking. We really lucked out with this new pastor. He's giving us just like these, these things we never would have thought of. First pray, then ask for help. I, I know this is high-level stuff, but it's probably stuff you need to hear. It's something I need to hear. Whenever you have something going on at your home and you need help, maybe you're working on a project and you don't have the right kind of screwdriver. You, you know, they always use those ones that look like an asterisk with like 15 different points. You don't have to go to the hardware store. You don't have to go to Lowe's or Home Depot. You probably have a neighbor who has that stuff and we would be glad to help you out. Whenever you're baking a tasty treat for your neighbors, if you figure out you don't have enough eggs, you know, you could get in your car, but you could also take the opportunity to talk to your neighbor and ask them for help. I don't know about you, but if my neighbors come and ask me for eggs, I'm more than happy to provide that for them. So recognize your own needs and ask someone who can help. All right, it's Father's Day weekend. You didn't think you're going to get out of this without hearing about my daughter, right? 
This is my daughter, Elsie. She's three years old. She had a dance recital just uh, a few weeks ago. But a few months ago, we were in bed and I was asleep and, and I woke up whenever I heard her cry out. And I didn't know why that was. And so I got up and walked into her room to check on her and see what was going on. And, and you know, I, I crept up there. I didn't... It, if you're a parent, you probably have this situation where, where you hear your kid and, and they went back to sleep, but you went in and woke them up and, and made it worse. So I didn't want to do that, but I, I crept up and, and she was still asleep. She just cried out and gone right back to sleep. So, you know, I just rubbed her back for a second and, and then I was leaving. And I got almost to my door and I, I heard this little voice cry out. And she said, kiss on the cheek. After I recovered from my heart melting, I turned around I walked to my daughter, I bent over, and I kissed her on the cheek. I was so happy to give her exactly what she needed, and I was so glad that she asked. We have a Father in heaven who loves to give us exactly what we need, who is more than happy if we'll just ask, if we'll just receive it, who wants to give us that more than anything. Our neighbors may be human and imperfect, but most of the time they're more than happy to bless us if we only give them the opportunity. This art of receiving stuff is hard. It's a challenge. We don't want to ask, but whenever we do, God can do amazing things.